Well, thank you all very much, and uh, good morning. It is great to be with you. Uh, your pastor, Kai, and I did a little bit of a preacher swap this morning. He is down in Barrie and uh, should be wrapping up there right about now as we actually celebrate our 19th year anniversary down there, which is super exciting, 19 years of God's goodness and faithfulness to us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, but I, I am super excited that he's down there because that means I get to be with you and I get to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Open them up, turn them to Matthew uh, chapter eight. And uh, I must also say, as we get started, how amazing it is to be able to preach to people in the room. It's been a, a long time of teaching to an empty room and uh, just one camera right front and center with a little red light above it. And so I'm so glad that you're here and it certainly is great to be together. So of... The number of things that have and will be talked about relating to this pandemic is that it has revealed to us again, as if it needed any more revealing, uh, that we have an interesting relationship with authority, don't we? And often in our lives, problems arise relating to authority for one of two reasons. Either A, people will take the authority that they've been given and misuse it to dictate to dominate, to push their own agenda, or authority, here's the other one, won't be recognized or respected. And both are a problem. And we love to talk at length about those in authority today, don't we? Especially now, it seems, whether for good reason or not. And yet we fail to realize as we talk about those people, as we discuss these things, that the same pursuit of power and authority that those who are in power today are pursuing is the same pursuit that is tearing our marriages apart. It's the same pursuit that's driving our kids further and further away from us. It's what's disqualifying us in our witness to our extended family who doesn't love Jesus or those in our workplace who aren't believers as we connive and scheme to get our own way or to put others down behind their back, to always be right no matter what, to hide our sin and not deal with it in a way that God would desire because we can show no weakness because we need to be in control. All of us deep down, if we're honest, we all long for authority. Whether it's over ourselves or over others, we crave it. And we hate it when we don't have it. The results of all of these things, of course, can be devastating for us. So as we come to God's word this morning, we will meet a man who had significant authority in his life, and yet he recognized that the authority that he had fell short. That there was something so much greater. There was authority so much higher than any he could find. And that changed him. This morning as we discuss the topic of authority, my hope and prayer for us is that we would realize in every aspect of our lives, we are under the authority of Jesus Christ. And as we look to this interaction between Jesus and the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, that we would see that submission to Christ's authority ought to change us as well. Let's dive into the text together now. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5, verses five to 13, I should say. I'll read it, pray, and then we will dive into this together. Sound good? Awesome. These are God's words to us this morning. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. When he, speaking of Jesus, 
had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you this morning and come before your word humbly to recognize, God, we need to hear from you today. Many of us coming into this place carrying the burdens of the weak, the burdens of, of failure, of sin, of hardship, of hurt. And we pray, Father, that we would lay it at your feet this morning and that you would do a work in this place in our hearts. That your spirit would move and work and teach us tangibly from your word, that you would rebuke and correct the areas of our lives that aren't consistent with what you would desire from us and God, that you would encourage us from your word this morning, we pray. Be glorified in all of this, we ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. So in every aspect of my life, I am under the authority of Jesus Christ. We've established that. And if that's going to happen in our lives, we need to see this first. It takes humility. It takes humility. It takes me understanding my place. And notice here in the first part of verse six, how the centurion asks his request of Jesus. Check it out. Lord, he says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. See that first word there? That's significant for us. He calls Jesus Lord. This was the equivalent of the centurion calling Jesus his commander-in-chief. Centurions at this point in time were kind of the backbone of the Roman army. They were in charge of about 100 or so soldiers. Makes sense, right? Because of their name, obviously. And they were a direct report to the emperor as their words and orders were a direct reflection of the Roman Empire. You see, the centurion's authority came from the fact that he was specifically commissioned and sent out by the emperor himself. So for this man to come to somebody else, and not just someone else, but a Jewish man, and call him Lord, that's significant. That can't be lost on us as we go through this passage. He goes on to tell Jesus, of course, that his servant, whom he obviously cared greatly about, revealing to us more of this man's genuine character, is paralyzed and in extreme pain, to which Jesus responds, all right, I'm going to come and I'm going to heal him. And you see, the story could have ended right there. The centurion got what his heart desired. He longed to have his servant healed, delivered from whatever infirmity had struck him paralyzed. Jesus could have come to his home, laid his hands on him, and it would have been an amazing miracle and evidence again of Jesus's love and care and compassion and deity and strength. But how this man responds to what Jesus says ratchets up the awesomeness of this story. Check it out, verse 8. The centurion replied, notice he says it again, Lord, 
I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Do you see the humility there? That's awesome. The centurion understands who Jesus is. He recognizes his complete and utter unworthiness to have Jesus enter his home. He gets that Jesus isn't just a man. There's something different here. Centurion gets his place. Even as one who has authority bestowed to him, he recognizes that Jesus has a higher authority. See, the ultimate authority in our lives is it's not the government. It's not morality. It's not some higher level of education or thought or understanding. It's not personal achievement or wealth or social status. It's not even our rights as citizens. Whatever we use to fuel our argument. For the followers of Jesus, he is the ultimate authority and what he says goes. See, with this small glimpse into the life of Jesus that the centurion had, he understands it, and his understanding is remarkable. We hold in our hands this morning the full scope of Jesus' life and ministry and who he was and what he did, and yet we so often fail to recognize our own unworthiness in relation to who Jesus is. See, if we want the heart and life change that so many of us claim to desire, it starts with welcoming the idea that in every area of our lives, Jesus holds the final word. Following Jesus doesn't mean that he has authority over some of our lives. We give him three days and the other four are dictated by ourselves or something or someone else. Jesus rules in every aspect. And that all that we do, all that we hear, all that we read, all that we watch, all that we say, all that we base our lives on ought to be filtered through the lens of who Jesus is and who we are in him. So the question before us then is what aspects of your life are you not surrendering to Jesus? having a right view of Jesus impacts all that we are. I've highlighted three, three of them, three key areas here for us this morning. First, it impacts our relationships. Because if Jesus is the ultimate authority in my life, then I'm going to view and interact with others in the same way that he did. We are to be, as Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, submitting, laying ourselves and our wants down to care about the needs and wants of others before ourselves. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 to chapter 6, verse 9. Really the proof text for us in all of this in terms of how we ought to be living our lives and having relationships with others in light of the authority of Jesus Christ. Because the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus came and served. See, recognizing Jesus as the ultimate authority takes humility, which means that I'm here to serve for the good of those around me. So many relational problems would be resolved in our lives if we had the you-before-me mindset that Jesus does. 
Secondly, having a right view of Jesus impacts my decisions. From the big decisions in our lives, right down to the words that I choose to use, the attitude I have, the thoughts I allow into my head and my heart. The direction I take in this life is dictated by him. So who or what is influencing and impacting your decisions? Who or what is at the core of your life? Because if we claim to be followers of Jesus, to have our lives changed by who he is and what he's done, to have him be the Lord of our lives, it's not that he gets a slice of the pie. It's not that he gets the biggest slice of the pie. It's that he is the pie and everything else in our lives stems and comes from him. We truly surrender to him and receive the forgiveness of sins. He takes over as the Lord of our lives, which means that his words and his examples are the benchmarks for us in every area. Love what Proverbs 3, 6 says about this. In all your ways, and how many of your ways? All of them. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I'm not talking about Acknowledging Jesus like you would if you pass somebody that you know while you're driving down the street. Too many Christians are giving Jesus the casual wave of acknowledgement as they go on their merry way. In every and all ways, Jesus ought to be at the forefront so that in every decision, every direction, every interaction, it is Jesus coming through in us. Jesus is driving the car and he dictates where we go and what direction we take. Lastly, a right view of of Jesus impacts my disciplines. What I commit to on a regular basis. Because you see, when you know Jesus and you know what it is that he's done for you, the right response then is to read, okay? To crack the book, to recognize your need every single day for a word from him and a deeper understanding of who he is and what he calls us to. The right response is to pray, to bow down before him and to cry out to him in your life for the things that you have going on, for the things that other people have going on in their lives. Pray for the humility and growth that you desire in your life. The right response is to worship, both personally and corporately, to spend time praising and adoring God for who he is and what he's done in your life, both in song and in Um, in in generosity and also in deed in what you do. The right response then is also to serve both in the church and in the community that you're a part of. I apologize, I don't have anything super monumental for you here, but this stuff isn't rocket science. Each of these four things are inherently humbling in what they are as they should be an outward expression of an already inward reality because to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ is to bow to his will. It's to abandon our fleshly and prideful desires and what we would want to do to abandon and cast off this world and its so-called riches and to take up our cross and follow him. The incredible thing about Jesus is that he exemplified this perfectly for us. Philippians 2, right? Not only did he humble himself by leaving the throne room of God and coming down to this earth he formed, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So will you do the same? 
Will you surrender your comfort? Let's not recognize that that extra hour of sleep in the morning would be great. But you wanna know what's better? And it'll be better for you and your relationships. And it'll be better for you and your marriage or for your relationship with your kids or for you and your workplace. It'd be to get up that hour early and spend time with the Lord. Will you surrender your pride? Would you be willing to take a few shots on the chin for the sake of the gospel? Because see, as the truth of Jesus' authority continues to penetrate deeper into our lives. And as we surrender our comfort, as we surrender our pride, as we take up our cross to follow him, the result is a greater understanding of our unworthiness before him, which leads to a greater humility as we live for him. And then it leads to this next. As I live under the authority of Jesus in every aspect of my life, it also empowers faith. Verse nine. For I too, the centurion says, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. The way that he starts that phrase, that seemingly insignificant three-word phrase at the beginning is indication that he gets it. He says, for I too. From the centurion's perspective, he recognizes that just like he has been given authority from Rome, Jesus too has been granted authority in this world by the Father. Now, he could not have known that Jesus was and is God, but from what he saw and perceived, he knew that Jesus was certainly sent by God and bestowed with his power. The centurion understood that when he spoke, Rome spoke, but when Jesus spoke, God spoke. And the power that Jesus had to heal the servant by simply his words came from the fact that he had the power of God at work within him. You see, the centurion understood what many in Israel who were supposed to be God's people did not. So in hearing what the centurion says and in hearing his clear declaration of understanding and belief in who he is, Jesus says just that in verse 10. Take a look. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. See, Jesus holds ultimate authority. What he plans and purposes to do, he will do. And he marveled at the faith of this man this Gentile, this non-Jew who did not grow up in Jewish traditions, who did not grow up going to synagogue, hearing of the faithfulness of God. And yet he understood better than all of those who had. You see, his faith did not come in believing that Jesus could just heal his servant, but it came in the full measure of his understanding of the authority of Jesus Christ over the physical aspects of this world. course, we have the blessing of what the centurion at this time didn't have in having the full measure, whole scope of Jesus's life and ministry before us. And so we have the privilege of being able to see past this passage to as Jesus concludes his time and ministry here on this earth, Matthew 28, 18, when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has authority over disease and sickness. Can I get an Amen. He has authority over demons and cast them out. 
He has authority over the wind and the waves and calmed them with just his words. He has authority to raise the dead, to forgive sins, to release from bondage and slavery, to break down hard hearts, to save sinners. This Gentile centurion got that. He recognized the implications of that. That empowered him to believe. See, as we see the will of God play out in our lives and in the lives of others, the natural reaction and response ought to be for our faith to deepen and grow. Jesus is the one in whom all things hold together, and we see his authority on display before our very eyes on a daily basis. And the fact that the universe held yet, he was an agent in creating, hasn't come completely unraveled yet. In that we have life and breath and the necessities of life on a daily basis. In that the sun rises and the sun sets. In that the earth in which we live is hung in our solar system so perfectly so as not to freeze up or burn up being too far away or close to the sun. If that wasn't enough, Jesus' authority is found in the mercy and grace and forgiveness that we experience daily in the victory that he won for us on the cross, dying in our place, and then raising to new life three days later. You see, when we understand what it is that we actually deserve as sinful human beings, the authority that Jesus exercised once and for all in giving us an opportunity to have our sins dealt with becomes so much greater. Oh, that we would have eyes to see the authority of Jesus Christ on display in the creation that we live. In our lives and in the lives of those around us and would that well up in us a deeper faith to trust him more. My wife, Emily, and I have a uh, 16-month-old daughter at home. And she is just starting out the phase where she's starting to test mommy and daddy's authority. Experienced parents in the room, you can laugh. It's okay. I recognize that. Starting, it never ends. We have a fireplace at home that has an outline of reflective metallic material. And she also has a pretty big pride issue because she'll just like stand in front of that thing and look at herself for way too long. But of course, anytime she goes near to it, what do we say? No, Annie. No, honey, come away from there. Now, it's just starting to get cold, so we're going to turn that fireplace on eventually, right? And she hasn't experienced what it's like when the heat actually comes off that and what would happen if you touched it. And so our hope, obviously, is that she would recognize that she can trust mommy and daddy because when mommy and daddy say no to crawling up the stairs on her own and she still falls down and hurts herself, she recognizes that we're just doing this for her safety, right? But we know she's still gonna test that. How often do we do the same with God? Do we test his authority? Do those commands really apply to me? I know your word says this, God, but doing this seems best for me right now. Feels good. 
Let me ask you this. Do you know what you were destined to? Do you know the authority of Jesus? Do you understand what the implications of that are for you? Are you surrendering completely to him in every aspect, recognizing that it's his authority that brings you from death to life, from darkness to light? Is his authority that should cause us to go when he says go? Should cause us to come when he invites us in? And to do what he asks of us as we recognize that he is the one in whom our faith is found. And he is the one in whom our faith is grown. The audience that Jesus would have had, if we jump back to our passage here, would have more than likely been made up of mostly Jewish people. They no doubt would have been shocked to hear Jesus' commendation of the centurion's faith. Up until now, Gentiles were pagans, unable to enter the family of God. But what Jesus claimed next was even more mind-blowing and controversial for them than what he said already. And it was absolutely remarkable and amazing for the Gentiles. See this last. When I live under the authority of Jesus in every aspect of my life, it brings hope. Down to verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. His reference to those coming from the east and the west are the Gentiles non-Jews, who Jesus is saying will have a seat available to them at the banquet of the Messiah, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as detailed in Revelation 19 in the kingdom of heaven. I'm saying this, Jesus pulls no punches here, right down to the fact that he explicitly mentions the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the nation. And you see, including Gentiles into the family of God was completely wrong for the Jews of the day. You see, the centurion's faith and Jesus' commendation of it was indication that admittance into the family of God was available now to any who call on his name. Something we should be incredibly grateful for. It's available to any who recognize that Christ alone is the ultimate authority and the only means of which forgiveness and salvation can be received, a promise filled with unbelievable hope where before there was none. As if that wasn't enough, we come to verse 12, where Jesus goes right for the jugular. He says, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can almost infer there, that phrase, sons of the kingdom, refer to those Jewish people who believed that because they were born Jews, that eternal life was automatic for them. They were getting in by right. But for them, Jesus says, there's nothing but outer darkness cast far away from the light and hope and joy of the banquet table of God to a place of darkness and despair, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place Jesus speaks of is hell. It's a place where all who do not call on the name of Jesus will be sent. William Hendrickson, a commentator who's written extensively on eternity, says 
this as of hell, of hell. The tears of which Jesus speaks here are those of inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness and utter, everlasting hopelessness. The accompanying grinding or gnashing of teeth denotes excruciating pain and frenzied anger. This grinding of teeth, too, will never come to an end or cease. Hell is not some made-up place to scare people into being good. Hell is real. And people who do not turn to Jesus will go there. Because you see, inherent in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done is what he has saved us to, that of course being forgiveness and eternal life, but it's also what he saved us from. And we don't talk about that latter enough. Hell is a place you do not want to be. And in Jesus, we are promised the hope that we will not experience that place of unimaginable, utterly devastating, completely crippling evil. Because you see, Jesus himself has the authority to unlock the gates of heaven and of hell. And what you choose to do with him will dictate which path you take. Make no mistake, hell is what we all deserved. Because of our sin, we were guilty. The sentence was death. And every day that we lived on this earth apart from the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ was another day that the gavel fell closer and closer to hitting the bench and sentencing us forever. But thanks be to God that the moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he bursts into the courtroom rushes up to the accused and takes the shackles off your hands and your feet, places them on himself, and he takes the judgment and the punishment while we walk free. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. With the hope of abundant life now and eternal life to come. In Jesus, there is hope for eternity, but not just for eternity, there is hope for now. Hope for joy and for peace and for fulfillment and freedom. How you respond to Jesus today can change where you spend eternity, but can also change how you live your life here. So I'd implore you today, if you are sitting here and have not yet made a decision for Jesus Christ, weigh the cost. Is a life full of temporary fulfillment here worth sacrificing an eternity of joy? Stakes are high and who you bow the knee to while you are here on this earth matters. But for those who, can't, who come to Jesus, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter your background, your nationality, all are welcome at the table of God and his kingdom through the gospel of hope made available to us through Jesus Christ. Through submitting to his authority in all matters of life, through confessing your sin to him which separates you from God and deserves a punishment of eternal death, through the repenting of it, turning away from it and turning to him, welcoming him as Lord of your life and the ultimate authority in all things. And then we come to verse 13, which 
is almost added as an afterthought to all that Jesus has said in verses 11 and 12, but it's absolutely incredible nonetheless. After declaring all that he has just said, Jesus turns to the centurion and says to him, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. The servant was healed at that very moment. A beautiful picture for us of the hope that comes from the authority of Jesus, of the promise that comes through submitting to him, healing and blessing and the joy of his strength. I mean, really, one can only imagine the joy that was experienced in Centurion's home when his beloved servant was healed. See, it's human nature for us to chafe against the idea of submitting to somebody else. I mean, sure, some of us might be a little bit better at it than others, but at the end of the day, whether they believe in him or not, all are subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. All are under the authority of the one to whom they must give account. All are under the authority of the one who one day will burst through the clouds, riding on a white horse. Listen to these words. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For those who love and follow him, who are willingly under the authority of Jesus Christ, these words are ones of great hope. For those who don't, words that should strike fear at the might and power and evident authority of the Son. See, the offer of life and hope in Jesus Christ is offered to all, but it does have an expiration date. For the follower of Christ this morning, the commands are clear. Submit humbly. Follow passionately. Grow in your faith as you watch him work and cling to the hope of eternity that comes from him. So do you see Jesus as your ultimate authority? Will you submit to him in every aspect of your life? Will you find the joy and the blessing that comes from in everything, submitting to Jesus's authority? Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you for your word and for the challenging nature of it. Lord, you don't equivocate. 
You proclaim what is true and you give it to us in your inerrant word so that we would know and understand who you are and what you call us to. So now in this moment, Father, we confess that we often fall short of the mark that you have set for us. And God, we ask, we plead, Lord, that by your spirit, you would do a work in each and every single one of us today to understand your authority and to respond to this in faith, in belief, in submission to you in all aspects of our lives. Search our hearts, Father. Move by your spirit to challenge and rebuke those who are in rebellion. To encourage and lift up those who are pursuing you and who are beat down by the circumstances of life by others. And God, teach and instruct all of us today. None of us have arrived. God, we look forward to the day when we see that rider on the white horse burst through the clouds. We pray in this day and age, come soon, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this time. Be glorified, Lord, we pray in the precious name of your son. Amen.